are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Our scripture this morning comes from John's first letter, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, Not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. For no one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, I have a question for you. Have you ever clung to something as if your life depended on it? Like physically clinging on to something, not metaphorically, physically clinging on to something and As I was thinking about that question, I thought of a time where I actually was the thing being clung to. Uh, Maybe as a parent, you can relate to this story, but when we uh, signed our daughter Hazel up for swimming lessons when she was three, it was the first swimming lesson where the parent is in the pool with, you know, with the child, and we were trying to get her just to enjoy the water, enjoy the splashing, and she was like digging her fingernails into my arm. She would not let go, clinging so tightly And all I was trying to do was like, hey, no, I got you. You're not going anywhere. Nothing's going to happen. But she just would not let go. And and I think, you know, kids cling to things because they, you know, fear some sort of thing around them or, or they cling to their parents for safety and security when they see something uncomfortable around them or some peril, right? And so as we think about our own lives, I think we cling to things, right? That we, in times of difficulty or distress, might cling to things, maybe not people, but we might cling to the security of our bank account in, or our retirement plan. We cling to the belief that working hard enough can get you out of any tough situation. Or, or maybe we cling to the hope that better days are ahead if we can just get through it. But regardless of what we cling to, it's, it's appealing to have something to hold on to for one reason or another. It's, it's understandable, right? We live in a world that can be scary, dangerous, and threatening, and we, and we want to know that we're going to be okay. Well, we've been in this series in 1 John uh, called Children of Light and Love as a reminder to us to walk in the way in which Jesus walked. So as children of God, we are privileged and called to share in God's life to live in God's love, and to walk in the light and not walk in the darkness. And we've also been taking a thematic look rather than a sequential one as John kind of hits some of these themes time and time again. But for our time this morning, we will be predominantly in 
1 John chapter 2, so you can turn there if you haven't yet already. Um, and if you have your Bibles open, you might notice, at least in the ESV, there's this title of this section that says, Warning Concerning Antichrists. So, okay, here we go. Youth guy is up to preach again, and now we're talking about antichrists. Well, I thought about titling this sermon, How Not to Be an Antichrist, but thought that might be a little too negative, so we went with the positive exhortation instead. Uh, but in these verses, as you'll see, uh, John has given us kind of these three things that he wants to get across. First is a warning, then there's a reminder, and then there's an exhortation. So a warning, a reminder, and an exhortation. We'll take time to get there. Uh, but as we dive in and get started, here's what I want you guys to walk away with. Cling to Christ. Cling to Christ. This is John's message to his readers, and this is my message for you this morning. Cling to Christ. So he gives this same exhortation to them, but it starts with this warning. And this is in the first two verses of our section, verses 18 and 19. Children, it is the last hour, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. Now, it might seem odd, at least it did to me, that John is writing about antichrists given what we've looked at in the last few weeks, right? John's letter is all about walking in love and truth and light, and then here he's talking about antichrists. And it might also seem odd that we're taking time this morning to talk through it. Of all the passages in 1 John to talk about maintaining your confession, you went with the antichrist passage, yes. Um, but if you look at the verses that immediately precede this, specifically verse 17, we see a little bit of the context that is fresh on John's mind. He's talking about how the world is going to be passing away. The world is passing away with all the sinful desires, but he's like, you want to know what lasts forever? The world passes away, but what lasts forever is the one who does the will of God. So then he goes to talking about these antichrists, these people who have left. He says, hey, they have left, but you have remained, those who do the will of God. So it follows logically to me that this is where John goes um, in what he's trying to say to them. But he begins by reminding them of their situation. He says, children, it is the last hour. Well, John is not just saying that to be dramatic. He's not trying to bring some heightened sense of, hey, better pay attention. But he's just reminding them of the context that they're in. And while for us that language doesn't really hit the same way, for his audience, for his readers, they, they immediately would have knew what he was talking about, right? The, the, the phrase of the last hour or the last days, it's used by Jesus in the Gospels. It's used by several apostles in the book of Acts and other New Testament writers. And it's all kind of referring to the times of our present reality between Jesus's ascension and his eventual return. So was John in the last hour writing in the first century after Jesus ascended? Yes. Are we still in the last hour? Well, Jesus has not returned. So yes, we are still in this last hour. So this was, you know, verbiage that they were familiar with. So this is the context. This is, he's orienting them to where they are in the grand scheme of history. You haven't missed anything. Then he goes to talking about these antichrists. So who is the antichrist or these antichrist. And this idea is not central to John's letter, and it's not even central to what we're talking about this morning, but 
for the sake of context and make sure we're all on the same page, we're just going to take a moment to talk about who John is referring to. And I also want to try and help us demythologize what we might think when we hear the word antichrist. And if you're as surprised as I am that I just used a word like demythologize, I did check with Pastor Joey and he said it was okay to use that word. So um, John is actually the only New Testament writer who uses this word antichristos in Greek, which, any guesses to what it means? Antichrist, right, yes, not a lot of help there, but uh, he, he probably maybe even was the one who coined this term. And for most of us, when we hear the term antichrist, we think of, right, like Revelation, the apocalypse, the mark of the beast, right? We think of the time we spent reading the Left Behind series in the 90s, or last week, I don't know. Um, but the point is, it is true, there is this figure that John writes about in Revelation and Paul mentions in 2 Thessalonians, uh, calling him the man of lawlessness. There's this figure present around the time of Christ's return um, that is this influential, evil, political figure. But that's not who John's talking about here. So if you notice, he says that many antichrists have come. And if you look at uh, chapter 4, verse 3, he says that every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist which you heard was coming, right? The Antichrist is coming, but it's also now in the world already. So here, the use of the word is not so much describing their title as much as it's describing their theology and their practice. So, these Antichrists, what do we know about them? They have positioned themselves as opposed to Christ. They are counter to Christ. And as we see later in verse 22, which we'll get to in a few minutes, that the Antichrist is the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. And then in John's second letter, verse 7, he says that many deceivers have gone out into the world, deceivers who deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. These deceivers are Antichrists, he says. So, in part, these antichrists are ones who denied that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Christ, but they've also denied the full humanity of Jesus as the Christ. So they've denied the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus, and that does, in fact, make someone anti-Christ, counter to Christ, or an anti-Messiah. And so actually, for our time this morning, I'm going to be using the term anti-Messiah, so we're not you know, crossing our wires and figuring out what we're talking about or what John is referring to. So these anti-messiahs, and it's a pretty harsh-sounding term, but John wants to be explicitly clear that those who deny the divinity or humanity of Jesus have no part in him. So John's not trying to inform his readers about the timing or identity of the man of lawlessness that will be present at the future at Christ's return. Rather, he wants to make obvious the theology of those who had left this community of faith that he is writing to. So in the second half of this warning, he says that they went out from us, but they were not a part of us. And so he makes this compelling statement that these anti-messiahs were actually formally a part of this community. And we aren't given many details about who these people were or you know, why they left or when they left, but when John mentions that they went out from us, it seems as though he is alluding to a known group of people. 
that his readers would know who he's referring to, even though he doesn't mention anyone by name. So they're not confused as to who he is talking about. And while we aren't given any explicit descriptors of this group, what John is sure to emphasize is the fact that they have left. And in their leaving, they have shown their true colors. For John, it's simple. If they had truly been a part of us, then they would have remained. But since they did go out from us, they made it obvious that they were not a part of us. Uh, a little while ago, my, my wife and I were playing a card game with some friends called Saboteur. And you don't need to know how the game works, but basically in this game, everyone claims to be a good guy. And you're all trying to accomplish this mission together. But meanwhile, in the background, there's these saboteurs who are trying to undermine and secretly thwart that mission without getting caught. Anyway, as the game was moving along, most everyone thought they knew who was on what side. We kind of pegged who the, the good guys were and the bad guys were. We knew what was going on. And then out of nowhere, one of the good guys plays a card that was so illogical, it made no sense. We all kind of start to correct, like, no, 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 you're one of the good guys. You wouldn't do that. And then it all kind of like dawned on us, the same, like, oh, you're a saboteur. And it was kind of this like, you know, bombshell of a moment that was very memorable. Um, but when that card was played, there was like no doubt that this was a bad guy, right? This was a saboteur. And so... John, as he's talking about these antichrists, these anti-messiahs, saying, hey, by the fact that they have left, that's kind of like the final card. Like, they have shown their true colors, that this is who they are. They are not, they were not a part of the genuine faith community. They have left, so they are not a part of us. A distinguishing feature of the Christian faith is permanence, that to be have, to have genuine faith in Christ means to remain in Christ. Those who remain in Christ show that Christ remains in them. It's this symbiotic relationship. And I, and I know, there I go using big words again, but it's this relationship where there is both give and take, where Christ remaining in us causes us to remain in Christ, and we'll come back to that a little later when we get to the exhortation. But here, John has warned them. He has warned them about these antichrists. He's put them in the situation, and hey, it's the last hour. We're still waiting for Christ's return. But as you're there, deceivers have gone out into the world. Be aware of them, but know that they have gone out. So they are not a part of the genuine community. But having given them the warning, he then turns to give them a reminder. And this reminder is what is true about them. Look at verses 20 to 23 with me. So he gave them a warning about the anti-messiahs, then he says, but you, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. John wants to remind them. He says, remember who you are and whose you are because he wants them to not give in to the temptation to find something or someone else to cling to. And so in these verses, he reminds them of four things 
that are true about them. Four things that are true about them that, by inference, we can say are not true of those who have left. The anti-Messiahs who have left the church, left the community, these things are not true, but these are true of you. So the first thing he tells them or reminds them of is that you have been anointed by the Holy One. So as believers, they possess the unique power, wisdom, strength, and everything else that comes with being anointed by God. Now, what is this anointing by God? Well, it's pretty clear that it's the Holy Spirit. And while it's not explicitly said, John doesn't explicitly say that it's the Holy Spirit, based on what we read in the rest of his letter and then also in his account of the gospel, um, we can see that he is referring to the gift of the Holy Spirit upon conversion. If you um, look at John 14, where uh, Jesus is in his, giving his disciples to this upper room discourse, after he's washed their feet and they've celebrated the Passover meal, before he gets betrayed, he has some final things to leave with his disciples. And one of the things is he's talking about the promise of this spirit, this advocate. He says that he will ask his father to give another advocate to his disciples who will be with them forever the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So he's reminding them, this is your anointing. You have the Holy Spirit because you have accepted Jesus and, and salvation through Christ. So if, if John is gonna drive to this exhortation in just a minute to cling to Christ, if that's where he's going, he needs to make sure that his readers know why they are able to do that. You're able to do that because you have the Holy Spirit. You have been anointed by God. You have been chosen and set apart. The second truth that he is reminding them of is that he says, you know all things. Or maybe your translation says, you all have knowledge, or you know all things, or you know everything. And the reason you might get some variation there between translations is because in the Greek, there's almost like, seems to be a word missing, that there's no object of the verb. It just is saying, like, you all know blank. So there's some people feeling like, okay, maybe he's saying he, they know the truth, they know everything. Doesn't matter. The point being, John's trying to tell him, hey, you have the knowledge you need. You have the knowledge you need. We can reasonably infer, by John's mention of this, that these anti-Messiahs who had gone out from the church we're probably laying claim to some unique source of knowledge or truth. And it's not that hard to imagine that these false teachers, seeking to deceive, saying something like, oh yes, I, I used to think that too, that's, that's nice. But when I came to find out that Jesus is not who he says he was, then everything changed. Let me tell you about the real truth. So there's probably this, likely that they've laid claim to some other source of knowledge. And John's saying, no, you have all the knowledge you need. You have knowledge of all things that you need as it pertains to the truth and salvation. And the interesting part is John says, like, not only do you have all the knowledge you need, the source of this knowledge is not human. The source of this knowledge is your anointing. Your whole, the Holy Spirit within you is the source of your knowledge, not some human source who's saying, oh, yes, I know the way. No, your knowledge came not from human form, but from your anointing, from the Holy Spirit. So he, he reminds them that they've been anointed, they have all the knowledge they need, and then he also says, he reminds them that you know the truth. You know the truth. 
He's removing all doubt about what he's talking about. He doubles down and says, I'm not writing to you all because you need something that you don't have yet. Right? Like, he's not, hey, here's a, here's a new thing. Hey, since we talked last, here's this other thing I want to tell you about. No. He says, you already know the truth. And there is no lie in the truth. So you know and possess the truth, whereas these others who have left have shown to be liars. Now, if you go back to chapter 1 and what we've talked about the last couple of weeks, John makes some of these hypothetical statements. Um, and they can be read possibly as John making veiled references to this group that has left the church. Like maybe they were the ones actually making some of these claims. So look at some of these hypothetical statements. Verse 6 of chapter 1. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So if we read these verses with an understanding, at least maybe in part, John is referencing these people who have gone out from them, then we can maybe infer the claims they were making. Like maybe they were claiming this higher fellowship with God, that they have this closeness with God that, oh, you other people, unless you come with me, you don't have this fellowship with God. But John says, actually, they, they're walking in darkness. Or they might have made claims to being without sin or live, being able to live a life without sin. Hey, yeah, don't mess with sin. Come follow me. I'll show you the way, path of life without sin. And he says, hey, the only people they're deceiving is themselves, and the word of God is not in them. But once again, John is showing this stark contrast between these two groups. One is marked by knowing the truth that comes from their anointing of the Holy Spirit, and the other is marked by claiming higher knowledge and a truth from a different source. But in reality, they're made out to be liars. So the truth is not in them, but the truth is in John's readers. But once again, he's also just reminding them, hey, you don't need me to tell you what you already know. You already have everything you need. You have the truth. You know the truth. And then this leads into the fourth thing that he tells them. He reminds them of this fourth reality that they have the Father, right? These other people might have been making claims to have this fellowship with God, fellowship with the Father, and he says, hey, no, they've rejected the Son. They've rejected Jesus. And so because they've rejected Jesus, they have no fellowship with the Father, but you have a relationship with the Father. You who confess that Jesus is the Christ because you have fellowship with the Son, you have the Father as well. You have this fellowship with the Father. So to summarize, let's put it all together. I wish I had a fancy chart, but I don't. But you can imagine one. On the one side, we have this warning from John against these antichrists, these anti-messiahs. They have seceded. They have left the group. They have left the community of faith. They have been made out to be liars they deny that Jesus is the Christ, and they have no fellowship with God. On the other side, you have this reminder from John to the people he writes to, to dear children, you have remained, you have stayed, you know the truth, you have all the knowledge you need. This knowledge did not come to you from human sources, but from your anointing by the Holy Spirit, and you confess that Jesus is the Christ. And because of that, you have fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So yes, John is warning his readers about those who have fallen away and the danger of their teaching, 
and a reminder to not believe their claims to higher knowledge or fellowship with God. But he explains this warning by reminding them of what brought them into the family of God in the first place and the truth of salvation through Jesus Christ that they've known since their conversion. They possess this truth and they've been anointed by the Holy Spirit and have fellowship with God because they confess that Jesus is the Christ. So then he, this leads him to give them an exhortation. All right, given you a warning, I've reminded you about who you are, now here's what to do with it. Verses 24 and 25. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So in these last few verses of this section, John gives them an exhortation and a promise. But the promise is not from John, it's a promise from God. So the first thing he is encouraging them, exhorting them, teaching them to do, he says, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. He wraps it all up essentially by saying, let the word do its work in you. Let it remain, let it marinate. I don't know if anyone else in here likes to grill and smoke meats, you know, but I love being able to throw a great steak on the grill. And how silly would it be if I spent all this time making a marinade with the perfect blend of spices and salt and acid and heat, and I put the steak in the marinade, and then 10 seconds later, I take it out, rinse it off under the sink, and throw it on the grill, right? It'd be silly, if not idiotic of me to do that. You got to let it penetrate what you're going to enjoy. And so the word needs to be able to marinate in our lives, to penetrate every aspect of our life so that the word can do its work in us. Can't just let it, you know, brush up against us every once in a while. We need to let it, we need to immerse ourselves in the word. But once again, John is not saying, hey, this is something new. He says, no, this is the word you've heard from the beginning. In fact, scattered throughout this letter, he talks about this word that you've heard from the beginning. In uh, chapter 2, verse 7, he says, Beloved, I am not writing to you a new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And he goes on and on in other places, chapter 3 and 4, and says, Hey, this is not something new. I am just writing to affirm that what you heard at the beginning, what you accepted in your conversion, when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that is still what you need to hear. That is still the truth. Nothing's changed. This is what you have. So John, in reality, is not writing to correct their theology. He's not trying to chastise them for something they've done. But... With this exhortation, he is impressing upon them the need to hold fast to the truth that they heard from the beginning, that they heard at the time of their conversion. And it makes sense, right? These, the people he's writing to, these readers, no doubt were shaken by those who had left their community. Brothers and sisters left and began teaching this anti-gospel, teaching things contrary to what they had heard, and they didn't know what to do with it. And John's saying, hey, you're not crazy to feel this way to be a little shaken, but hold fast to what you know is true. And guess what? You have the truth because you confess that Jesus is the Christ. So the second part of this exhortation is, he says that you will abide in the Son and with the Father. So if you let this truth that you accepted 
from the beginning, if you let this truth abide in you, then what more could you want than fellowship with God? But maybe you're like me and you ask the question, well, how do we know? How do we know if the truth abides in us? How do we know if the Son abides in us? And the answers to these questions are once again scattered throughout John's letter. And here's just a sample, right? But we abide by walking in the light. We abide by confessing our sins to God. We abide by loving our brothers and sisters. We abide by holding fast to the truth of Jesus as the Christ. So we're supposed to abide, hold fast, cling. Well, who's doing the clinging? Who's, is it just us? Is it Jesus? Well, here we come back to this symbiotic relationship, right? Where as we confess with our mouth that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, his truth abides in us. Jesus abides in us, and as he anoints us with the Holy Spirit, then we abide in Jesus because he abides in us. It's kind of a circular reasoning, but it works. If the message you heard remains in you, if that message of the truth of the gospel remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and the Father. But how do we, how do we know? Wouldn't it be nice if John just said it straight up, like, this is how you know? That'd be nice. And he does. 1 John 4, 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us of his spirit. So this goes back to that anointing from the Holy One that John was mentioning earlier. That the joy of abiding comes from knowing that because we have the Holy Spirit, Even on our bad days and hard days, the worst of days, we abide in him because he has given the spirit to us and we have the spirit within us. What a promise, right? Well, he also gives us this promise of eternal life. What happens to those who abide? The Father has promised us eternal life. And this eternal life is not just future-oriented. It's not about what happens after we die, but it's also about this life now. It's also present-oriented. It impacts our life now. It's a life marked by loving our brothers and sisters, a life marked by sacrifice for others. It's a life marked by joyful obedience to God's commands. John writes this letter. He gives us his thesis statement in chapter 5, verse 13. The reason he's writing to these people is to encourage them, but he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants his audience, this church, to know that despite everything going on on around them, the people who have left, you have eternal life, and you can know with certainty that you have eternal life, and it's because of the Spirit. And there is joy that comes in this eternal life, this life everlasting with God. Ultimately, it's a very human thing to want to cling to something for safety and security, right? When Hazel was clinging to me in the pool, I didn't shame her. I didn't say, hey, you shouldn't be doing this. No, like it's, it's a natural response. But we should ask ourselves, right, when the storms of life come and we get knocked off our feet, what are we clinging to? Are you clinging to status or power? Well, I'll get through this because it's just who I am. Or are you clinging to what you have? Like, these things that I have, these things will help me get through it. It'll make it easier to get through this difficult time. 
Or, or maybe it's not about clinging to the wrong thing, but maybe we look for salvation in something else. The anti-Messiahs denied that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God in the flesh. They said salvation doesn't come from Jesus, and maybe that's where we're tempted. Jesus offers eternal life. Yeah, it sounds great, but I think I'm going to earn God's affection. I'm going to earn my place in eternity some other way. I'm going to seek fellowship with God this way. Or maybe you resonate with people who say that, well, I could never believe in a God that lets good people suffer and die. Or I could never believe in a God that doesn't just want everyone to be happy or doesn't let people love who they want to love or be who they want to be. Like, I wouldn't believe in a God like that. And yet, thankfully, God is not changing based on our desires or what we think about him. Some reject salvation by faith alone, by adding to what Jesus has done. They try to add to what he's done for us. And some subtract. They try to take away from what Jesus has done. But neither path leads to eternal life. So what is there left to do? What is there left for us to do? Cling to Christ. This Jesus, who you heard about and accepted, he is the one you should cling to. But you don't just cling to Jesus and then hold on for dear life, although that's not a bad strategy, even if that's all it is. We cling to Jesus because he is also clinging to us. He's holding us in that cold pool. That when we fear the perils around us, whether they're real or not, he doesn't try to peel away our grasp. He doesn't try and take our hands off of him. Hey, give me some space. No, he embraces us. He embraces us because we are God's children and he loves us. That is the Christ that we cling to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful and blessed to be your children, to be your sons and daughters. And we are called your children because of your son, Jesus, who you sent into this world to die in our place so that we could be called sons and daughters of God. But Father, as we see the distress and perils of the world around us, Father, may we not shrink back in fear or worry or anxiety, but may we lean in and hold all the more to Christ, our Savior. Father, help us to grow in our love for you and our obedience to you, knowing that as we let your word remain in us and work in us, we grow in our love and our fellowship with you. So it's in the name of Jesus that we ask these things. Amen.